This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Out of the Blue podcast. My name is John Fleetham and I'm Professor of Medicine at the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, Canada. Today I'm joined by Dr. Paula Schweitzer, who's the first author of the paper, The Combination of Roxybutynin and Atomoxetine in the Treatment of Obstructive Sleep Apnea, a Randomized Controlled Trial, otherwise known as the Mariposa Study. This was recently published in the Blue Journal. We're also joined by my colleague, Dr. Najib Ayaz, who co-wrote the associated editorial. Dr. Schweitzer is now retired, as the former director of research at St. Luke's Sleep Medicine Center at Chesterfield, Missouri. Dr. Ayaz is a professor of medicine at the University of British Columbia. Najib, to start the discussion off, we have several effective treatments for obstructive sleep apnea. Why do we need to develop pharmacologic therapy? That's an excellent question. One of the issues with sleep apnea is we know that it's a very common disease. So it's been estimated that there are almost a billion people in the world with some degree of sleep disordered breathing. And I think that you are right in that some of the therapies we have, especially, you know, CPAP and dental appliances, you know, can be quite effective in some patients. One of the issues, especially with CPAP, is the issue of adherence. So even in you know, expert hands, the adherence with CPAP is usually between about 60 to 70%, which means that you have about 30% of individuals who cannot tolerate the, the therapy. So because of that, I think that we really need to look at alternatives for the therapy of patients with sleep apnea. I think that these could, could include, you know, measures such as upper airway surgery or other novel electrical devices. But I think that the goal of having a pharmacologic alternative to treat these patients is one that we really need to look at as well. In addition, I think that we are progressing towards a more precision-based medicine approach for patients with sleep apnea as well. And I think that if we can tailor some of these therapies to patients' physiology or other demographics, that can be useful as well. And again, I think that given that a lot of these drugs affect some of these physiologic parameters, this can also, you know, this is also a fruitful area of research that we should be pursuing. I'd like to add a comment to that too. We kind of artificially defined adherence as use of CPAP of four hours or more on 70% of nights. And that doesn't really treat the patient during the entire night. So in addition to people having only an adherence rate of 50 to 65% in the population, based on that definition, we have people who are still not effectively completely treated. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point as well. And some people talk about you know, the burden of alleviation of the disease as well. And clearly if you have something that can work the entire night, whether it be medications or devices or surgery, you know, in some ways you could argue and say that that may be an advantage to uh, the CPAP that some patients don't use throughout the night. But Najib, which drugs are currently being assessed for the treatment of obstructive sleep apnea? And what are their proposed mechanisms? Well, a lot of drugs have been tried to treat patients with sleep apnea. You know, this has been going on for many, many years. And unfortunately, most of those studies have been negative. And we've used things such as, you know, nicotine or antidepressants as well. But I think that we are trying to focus more on the physiology of sleep apnea recently as well. I think that there's a lot of exciting preliminary studies in this field, including the one that you're talking about today. I don't think any of them are really ready for prime time at this point, but I think a lot of them, you know, may potentially have promise. I think that some of the areas that people are looking at is number 
number one, uh, drugs that will improve the upper airway activation of the muscles. So such as, you know, the drugs that were used in this study. The other things that people are looking at are drugs that may modify loop gain. So loop gain represents the gain of the respiratory system or the response of the respiratory system in response to a particular respiratory stimuli. It's been shown that individuals with a higher loop gain have more instability of their breathing and that this can also predispose patients to having sleep disordered breathing as well. So there are drugs, you know, carbonic anhydrase inhibitors or analogs of that. They may help with sleep apnea as well. The third kind of group are sedative drugs, and this targets kind of the arousal threshold. It's a little bit non-intuitive because in general, I think we're taught that we shouldn't really use sedatives in patients with sleep apnea. However, there's probably a small subset of individuals with sleep apnea where the sleep apnea is more due to the fact that they arouse continuously from a very small respiratory stimuli. And if you can kind of keep them from arousing, that may actually reduce the severity of sleep apnea as well. I think that another area that people are looking at are drugs that are targeted towards weight loss as well. So some of these GLP inhibitors that are, sorry, some of these GLP agonists that have gotten a lot of press in the last few years, you would think that logically by reducing the amount of weight or the amount of, of fat in the body, that may also help to treat patients with sleep apnea as well. So that seems to be some of the major areas that we're kind of looking at right now in terms of pharmacologic therapies. Paula, what were the objectives of this trial and primary and secondary endpoints? Primary objective was to evaluate the efficacy and safety of an investigational drug labeled AD109 in the treatment of obstructive sleep apnea. 8109 is a combination of the novel antimuscarinic agent R-oxybutynin and the norepinephrine reuptake inhibitor atomoxetine. The primary endpoint was the change in the apnea hypopnea index from baseline measurements to treatment for each of two doses of the investigational drug compared to placebo. We also included a group of patients who took atomoxetine alone as monotherapy, and evaluation of that data was a secondary endpoint. In addition, we evaluated a number of endpoints, sort of as a tertiary or exploratory, including some other measures of breathing, such as hypoxic burden, apnea apopnea index with additional definitions, subjective outcomes, and other polysomnographic sleep and arousal parameters. Which patients did you study? We studied patients with obstructive sleep apnea who had an apnea apopnea index between 10 and 45 with a BMI less than 38 for men and less than 40 for women. We excluded patients who had other clinically important sleep disorders active cardiac disease that was not controlled, hypertension requiring more than two drugs to treat, night or shift work people, and a number of drugs which could interfere with the evaluation of this medication. In addition, we did include some patients that were treated previously or currently. So patients treated with CPAP or other means such as mandibular advancement devices or positional therapy could enroll as long as they were not using the treatment two weeks prior to baseline and throughout the study. And what was your study design and methodology? This was a phase two randomized double-blind placebo-controlled study with four treatment arms. Two of the arms were a low dose of the AD109 drug 
the low dose included 2.5 milligrams of our oxybutynin with 75 milligrams of atomoxetine. And the higher dose had the same dose of atomoxetine, but 5 milligram of our oxybutynin. Then we had a comparative group with atomoxetine, 75 milligrams alone, and a placebo group. In addition to evaluation for medical issues and exclusion criteria, we had the patients in the sleep lab for two nights to confirm eligibility and establish baseline data. Then once randomized, study drug was taken at home for a four-week period, and we had treatment PSGs at the end of week three and week four. Now, the original one-night study came out in the Blue Journal a couple of years ago. I did a podcast on it. They used oxybutyrin in the drug combination. You used aroxybutynin. What are the potential differences between these two formulations? Well, aroxybutynin is a novel compound that hasn't previously been studied, except for a single-night study in combination with atomoxetine in patients with sleep apnea. Aroxybutynin is the R enantiomer of racemic oxybutynin, and that's the stereoisomer that's responsible for most of the antimuscarinic effects of oxybutynin. There's some data to suggest it may have a better safety profile than racemic oxybutynin, but it hasn't been studied directly. The single night study of our oxybutynin with atomoxetine was studied with a 2.5 milligram dose of aroxybutynin and either 37.5 or 75 milligrams of atomoxetine. And, and that single night study did show improvement in OSA severity. Okay, so now what were your primary findings? So the primary findings, we randomized, I think we randomized 211 people, 200 of nine of which received the allocated treatment. We saw with AD109, we saw a significant decrease in the apnea apopnea index. That include a, includes a 45% reduction in that apnea hypopnea metric. And 44% of patients had more than 50% reduction in the AHI. And 42% had AHI less than 10. We did note that the improvement occurred in patients with mild, moderate, and severe sleep apnea although a greater percentage of mild and moderate patients had resolution of their sleep apnea than in the severe group. On the other hand, we had relatively few patients in the severe group, and that's something that, that we want to study further. We also saw improvement in daytime fatigue with the lower dose of AD109, and the drug was generally safe and, and well-tolerated. You read this paper in detail, wrote the editorial. What are the strengths and the limitations of this clinical trial? Yeah, I think that this, this was a, a really excellent study that I really think pushed the field forward. And I really quite enjoyed reading the paper as well. I think that in terms of the strength of the study, I think it's one of the bigger studies that ever looked at medications in the field of sleep apnea. I think that the results are very promising in that, at least physiologically, there was a substantial reduction in the apnea hypopnea index as well. I think that in terms of, you know, but as, as was pointed out by Dr. Schweitzer, you know, it was a phase two trial. So I don't think that can be considered a definitive trial. In terms of some of the weaknesses, you know, the amount of time that the patients were on the drug was only a month. So you can't really look at what the long-term side effects were or what the long-term efficacy was. I don't think that it was really geared towards looking at clinical outcomes per se, 
but the impact of the drug on clinical outcomes was uh, a little bit uneven in that the lower doses of the drug, it seemed that there was an improvement in fatigue, but not really at the higher doses of the drug, which begs to, you know, that might have been because of the relatively small numbers of individuals or may have something to do with the drug side effects as well. I think that one of the other strengths is it really builds on some of the previous work that has been done in the area. So as you mentioned, uh, Dr. Fleetham, the previous one-night trial that was highlighted in the Blue Journal previously, some of the very elegant animal work that uh, Richard Horner has done in Toronto, looking at how these drugs, you know, can stimulate the upper airway. I think that these drugs really build on that previous work as well. So yeah, I think in general, those would be kind of the major strengths and some of the weaknesses of this trial as well. And I think that we'd really look forward to sort of bigger trials of longer duration that can really definitively say whether these drugs can be used in, in the clinical format. Laura, about 10% of your patients withdrew from the trial due to side effects. What were the primary side effects and, and how common were they? Well, first, there were no serious adverse events at all. Principal side effects were dry mouth, insomnia, urinary hesitancy, and nausea. The dry mouth was more common in the higher R-oxybutynin dose and also common in the atomoxetine dose, but not seen as much in the lower 8109 dose. About 59% of patients reported dry mouth, and that, that's consistent with these kinds of medications. Insomnia was much more frequent with atomoxetine alone, occurring in 37% of the, the group versus the um, 8109, where it occurred in only 24% of the group. Most of the adverse events were mild to moderate, but did lead to study discontinuation in about 10% of patients on 8109, but a much higher percentage, 17% in the atomoxetine group. The other thing uh, we noticed is that heart rate and diastolic blood pressure increased in some of the treatment groups. Is this a potential concern in patients who often have cardiovascular comorbidities? That's a really good question and something that certainly deserves more attention in future studies. But first I wanna comment that we did not have baseline data at the same time of day for these measures. So that adds a challenge to interpretation of those data. And however, the small increases seen are in the same range that have been reported in studies of atomoxetine in the treatment of ADHD, both short and long-term in children and adults and deemed not clinically significant in that population. However, given the increased risk of cardiovascular disease in the OSA population, small increases like this may be more clinically relevant. So clearly demands further study, especially long-term. On the other hand, I wanna point out that 8109 also decreased hypoxic burden. And a decrease in hypoxic burden is associated with reduced cardiovascular risk. And Najib, there was another clinical trial that came out this year of the drug combination. I think it came out the Annals of Thoracic Medicine. How do these two study results compare? Yeah, you know, there was a study from uh, Dr. Danny Eckert's group in Australia, which, you know, studied this in about 39 individuals. And they did show that there was a reduction in apnea hypopnea index in, um, in patients with sleep apnea as well. This study was much smaller. It was only about 39 individuals compared to this study that was much greater. But I think that it is very consistent with these results as well. I think that some of the drug doses they used, although that they were similar to the Mariposa trial, some of the drug uh, doses were a little bit different 
than what was used in Mariposa as well. So I think overall, the studies seem to be consistent with this drug as well. Again, you know, all these studies have been very short duration. So I think that we really need these longer trials of six months or a year, you know, to really get an understanding of how the side effects of these drugs balance, you know, the potential beneficial effects as well. And what do you know about the other trials? There are a variety of sort of them underway at the present time. Yeah, I, you know, I I am I don't know very much about them. I know that at this point there are two larger trials of this drug combination, the Lunero trial and the Synergy trial. One of them is for six months, and one of them is for twelve months as well. So hopefully these trial these study results will be out within the next couple of years, and I think we'll have a better understanding of how these drugs can be used in a more uh, clinical setting as well. So I think that you know this Mariposa trial, I think it was a, a substantial advance in the field, but again, I think it is still considered a pilot or preliminary study, you know, at this point as well. Hopefully the results of these two larger studies will help to really understand whether this is a viable clinical option for our patients. I'd like to, to add that those trials, in, in those trials, a subset of patients will be undergoing 24-hour ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. So we'll get additional important cardiovascular data from those studies. Yeah, and I, I think that would obviously very be very important as well, given some of the the preliminary results that you talked about with Mariposa as well. And again, as Dr. Fleetham pointed out, you know these patients are at risk of heart disease just in general. So, final question to you, Najib, and you mentioned it in your introduction. I mean, there's increasing discussion of personalized treatment or precision medicine based on physiological phenotypes. How close do you think we are to achieving this? And if we're close, which phenotype is most likely to respond to this drug combination? Yeah, I, I think that that's where a lot of the research seems to be going in the last few years is trying to, you know, I think that we tended to be lumpers before and lump all sleep apnea into a, a one category. But I think that we're trying to split up sleep apnea now to kind of figure out what are, what are the different clusters of patients and whether that may change the health consequences of the disease or the symptoms of the disease or how these patients may respond to therapy as well. And I think that, you know, from a logical setting, Given that you're talking about a billion people in the world with sleep apnea, it seems highly unlikely that all these patients would be homogenous as well. So it, it just given the sheer numbers, you think there would be some heterogeneity in these patients as well. I think there's a lot of great preliminary data that's looking at sort of physiologic parameters and biochemical parameters and symptom clusters to try to help us figure out how to parse out these patients. A lot of great information in terms of looking at physiologic um, you know, characteristics of these patients in terms of how much of the sleep apnea is from loop gain or how much of it is from you know, reduced activity of the muscles, how much of it you know, is from the arousal threshold and how much of it is just more from structural abnormalities of the upper airway as well. My feeling at this point is I think we're getting pretty close. And I think that probably in the next few years, we'll have a better understanding of how to utilize you know, some of these different biomarkers to help manage patients with sleep apnea, but I don't think that they were, we're there yet right now. I think that a lot of the studies that have been done have been done on very selected cohorts, and we really need to look at other cohorts to kind of help us understand, you know, the heterogeneity uh, of the disease across populations and ethnicities and socioeconomic status as well. In terms of the specific question on, you know, if you could speculate 
on what particular types of patients might, you know, be more, you might have a more beneficial response to these drugs. I think that you would speculate that those individuals who have a reduced upper airway muscle activity from respiratory stimuli would be the ones that would be more likely to respond to these medications as well. My understanding is that in these bigger trials that are going on, that they are going to be looking at some of the um, of these physiologic markers to kind of see whether that may be the case, whether they can actually find a subset of individuals who might respond better to these medications as well. So I kind of look forward to what happens with this clinical trial and then to kind of see whether you know it works in all patients or whether there's a subset of patients that, that they may work uh, very well in as well. So I don't think we're there yet. I think that there's a lot of work being in the, done in the area. So I think we are getting close, hopefully. But yeah, I don't think it's really ready for prime time at this point. Okay. Uh, do you have any final comments you'd like to make, starting with you, Paula? Oh, yeah. Given the high prevalence, this is sort of a reiteration, stuff we already know. Given the, given the high prevalence of sleep apnea, there is ongoing need for new treatment options for those unwilling or unable to use CPAP, as well as targeting those with specific phenotype and endotypic traits. This study is the largest thus far to demonstrate significant improvement in sleep apnea with a pharmaceutical treatment. So I'm really looking forward to the ongoing phase three trials for this drug. And for anyone who wants more information on the trial, they can go to sleepapneatrial.com where you can actually check eligibility or to clinicaltrials.gov for a full description of the trial design and the parameters. Najib, any final comments? No, I think just to reiterate what Dr. Schweitzer just said, like I think we really need to have a better understanding of how to best treat the patients that, that we see in front of us. I think that CPAP was a great advance in the field, but I just don't think that you know giving CPAP to everybody is probably what we're gonna be doing in the future. I think that there's certain individuals who do very well with CPAP and we have to figure out who those patients are. My suspicion is that there are other patients who probably do better with various pharmaceuticals, whether it's the drug that was used in Mariposa or some of the other drugs that are being tested, you know, I'm not sure. And that by the same token, there are probably other individuals who may respond more to electrical stimulation or you know, hypoglossal nerve stimulation, those things as well. So I think that there's a lot of work to be done in the area just to kind of really figure out what to do with, with these patients, how to best manage and, uh, and treat them. So in closing, I'd like to thank Dr. Swites and IS for this very interesting discussion. To the listener, to read the articles discussed in this podcast, please visit the podcast homepage at www.atsjournals.org. To listen to more episodes of Out of the Blue, visit our page on iTunes or Google Play, and you can also subscribe to stay updated whenever new episodes are available. So thank you again for listening.